Turn in God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Our focus will be on verses 18 through 25. I'll be reading 2.11 through 3.6. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be convicted of any kind of being domesticated by this world to be comfortable, to be soft, to act as residents here, uh, worshiping the idols of this world. I pray, Father, that as exiles, we would be so marked by holiness, by righteousness, that this world would be discomfortable with us and we would be comfortable with that and embrace any kind of suffering that might come as a result. Father, I pray that we would appreciate every part of Your Word, even the the hard parts, the parts that uh, we've been conditioned by the, the prince of the power of the air, by the forces of our culture that are at war with Your truth, that, that even those parts we're uncomfortable with, we would fully own We don't need to conform your word to this world, but we are called out of this world being conformed to the image of Christ by your word. May we bow to Christ in all. 
In His name I pray, amen. Suffer as slaves because of the exemplary and empowering suffering of the servant of Yahweh. That's as succinctly as I can put the central point of this passage. Again, suffer as slaves because of the exemplary and empowering suffering of the servant of Yahweh. That's the point of this passage, and it's one that hasn't been rendered obsolete. This truth is just as potent for us living in 21st century America as for the first century slave living in the Roman Empire. Too often, though, instead of reading the Bible into our experience, we want to read our experience into the Bible. That is a failure to realize who is slave and who is Lord. Instead of us being conformed to the image of Christ by the Word, we conform Christ to our image by our experience. We reorient the Bible around our lives instead of reorienting our lives according to the Bible. The Bible doesn't rule us. Rather, we take up this futile attempt to rule the Bible. And that's evident whenever we come to passages like this, passages that deal with slavery, passages that deal with submission. And what a text like this makes clear is really just how few really want to read their Bible. They just want an experience. They want some encouragement to get through the day. They, they want to pick me up. They, they want to sense that, that they've, they've had this kind of spiritual encounter with God. Their approach to the Bible, you see, is centered on their life. It's centered on them rather than centered on God's truth. They want to wield the Bible in their war rather than yield to the Bible in God's war. The Bible is a sword, but it's a sword that wields the bearer. And so many come to a passage like this and they just look for a quick and easy out. They, they may say something like, oh, that was the past. That, that was just a command that was limited to a certain time and that was for the past. It doesn't really apply anymore. Get over it real quick. Or they might even deny inerrancy, the inspiration, the infallibility of the word. Or they might try to do something less than that, but really results in the same thing and, and say that uh, the Bible was meant to send you on a trajectory. In other words, what it's saying here wasn't meant as truth that, that is unchanging, but it, it, it sends you in the right direction so that we would grow up into a point of higher morality. Or perhaps they just try to escape it by softening what should clearly be translated as slaves and substitute servants in its place. What all such approaches fail to do is simply hear the Word of God as the Word of God. They don't study. They don't look to see God's truth. They're so consumed with the 21st century that they don't even take the first step to really enter into the first century context in which it was given and hear the living word that can cut to the quick and give life. As you approach this, you, you just have to realize this, that there are two kinds of slavery predominantly featured in the Bible. And that both of them are substantially different from the image that we would conjure up in our mind. First, there's slavery according to God's law, as is outlined in the Old Testament, as it was given to the Jews. And you can see that in Leviticus 25, Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15. And even whenever you come to those places, you'll find many that are quick to make excuses for the Bible. We should never be ashamed to take the Bible upon our lips. It's the Bible that should blush to be on our lips. Not us, for the Bible. It's not our lips, but 
It's, it's our lips, excuse me, not God's word that's defiled. Now, our text doesn't concern that kind of slavery, and so I won't spend a lot of time unfolding it except to say this. It's centered on the well-being of the slave. It wasn't for the benefit of the master, the Lord, but the slave. You sold yourself into slavery to escape destitution. What kind of owner are you going to choose in that instance, you see? It was to escape destitution, and then it was limited to seven years. And then God commanded the Lord that you send them out liberally with blessings. That you just shower them with blessings, remembering that you were a slave in Egypt. What kind of liberality are you to show to them whenever they go free? Here's your pattern. Remember what God did to Egypt whenever you left there? That's how they're to leave your home when they finish their seven years. But then there is slavery according to man's laws, heathen slavery, pagan slavery. And even here the concept is radically different from what will come up in our minds. First, it was not race-based. Second, it wasn't limited to menial task. Now, it could be menial, hard task, especially those that were considered... There were, there were household slaves and then there were those who would work out in the fields or in the mines and these would be very horrible, horrible conditions they might be better educated than their Lord and serve in respectable positions. The slave's lot could either be much, much worse or much, much better than our concept of slavery in early America. What determined it? Murray Harris writes, "...the nature of any slavery is determined by the nature of the master." Who and what the master is determines the status of the slave, the attitude of the slave, and the significance of the slave's work. For example, to be in the employ of the emperor as a member of the household of Caesar, some 20,000 in number, gave the slave a significant status and certain prestige, which was usually reflected in a positive work attitude, as we would call it, and a sense of contributing in some way, however insignificant, to the smooth running of that massive machine called the Roman Empire. So the nature of ancient slavery could vary wildly. And the determining factor was the Lord. And once you begin to immerse yourself in that context, you'll see how alien these commands are. Because these commands are given to aliens. What you have right here and in Ephesians uh, 5 and 6 and in Colossians 3 are referred to as household codes that outline behavior for the various members of society. And the, the stark difference between the biblical household codes and the pagan ones that we have is that the biblical codes address the slaves and wives and children whereas the pagan ones only address the paterfamilias, the head of the household, and they only speak of his rights, which he is to exact by whatever force necessary, and everyone else's obligations to him. So the biblical codes not only speak of, speak to, excuse me, slaves and women and children, they not only speak to them, but whenever they do speak to the paterfamilias, whenever they do speak to the head of the household, remember it's the same person whenever you look at those household codes that would be husband, father, and Lord. Whenever they do speak to him, in every instance, it's not about his rights, but about his obligations and how he is to bleed so that others may live. And the pattern is Christ. And so the heathen codes, not the Bible, but the heathen codes would address slaves as property. And isn't it ironic that the academic elite will still sing the praises of an Aristotle whenever it was Aristotle who said, a slave is a living tool and a tool is an inanimate slave. How different the Bible. And why is it that the Bible's ridiculed? And not Aristotle? Why is it the scriptures were ridiculed both by ancient slave owners and the modern elite who say they oppose slavery in all of its form and the, the Bible is so backward in this command? 
It's because they both hate the lordship of Christ. That's the real rub. You see, here you have the Scriptures addressing slaves, telling them how they should live unto their earthly masters. That means there's a greater authority than those earthly masters. It means there is a Lord who's Lord of these lords, that they're not ultimate. And there's a Lord who has first rights to those slaves. Here is Peter. He's addressing the slaves of others. So just imagine how this goes across in the ancient world. These slaves are looked upon as property, and here comes Peter coming along and telling them how their property is going to behave in relation to them. Upon what authority is Peter doing this? In this Roman world, he's not Caesar. He's not some proconsul. He's not some higher up along the Roman scale of power to do so. Upon what authority is Peter doing this? He's told you in the first verse of this letter. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. For those saints who are slaves, it's not their earthly Lord, but their heavenly Lord that dictates their behavior. It's not any kind of earthly Lord by force that determines how they will live, but their heavenly Lord by His Word. The earthly lords are not ultimate. Jesus is. You're seeing here the same kind of freedom and slavery that were spoken of in relation to the state in verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You're free from the powers of this earth. You're free from the prince of the power of the air. You're free in the sense that they are not meant to dominate and rule and determine, but that Christ does. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, you were bondservants, you were a bondservant when called. Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there, let him remain with God. Now, this, this is true, you, you see this kind of freedom and slavery. This is true in relationship to the state. Peter unfolds that clearly. But we can miss how it's emphasized afresh with slavery because of the way our English translations try to smooth over the Greek syntax. And so more strictly translated, this is the order of the, of the phrases. Slaves, with all fear... Submit to your lords with all fear. The word that you have for as respect here, with all respect, is the exact same word that you have in verse 17 as fear. Fear God. Now, whenever you put the word order as it is in the, in the original language, you're more prone to see this phrase, with all fear, going back toward God rather than being in relation to the earthly Lord. Slaves with all fear, submit to your lords. Who's to be feared? You see, whenever you, you put the with all fear first, it makes you question, where, more so, where does that belong? And as you read First Peter, every other instance of fear is meant to be directed towards God and away from man. So, verse 17, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This distinction that's there. In one seventeen, Peter exhorted us, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. But then in contrast, concerning wives and and their submission to their husband, Peter says, do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. In 3.13 and 14, he tells these exiles, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, those you might suffer under. No fear. 
nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. That but implies that this honoring is to be a kind of fear and reverence to Christ. But what about Ephesians 6? The parallel passage where Paul says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. How do you get around that one? Obey with fear and trembling. Well, again, you just simply ask, who are, who's the fear and trembling directed towards there? And you read on. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. Obey with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. What is eye service as people pleasers? It's fear of man. It's doing what you do because you're afraid of how someone else will view it. And he says don't do it that way. But do it as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So in both these passages, I think it's clear that the fear and trembling that are to be a part of any obedience to any kind of earthly authority are only legitimate insofar as they're directed towards God and not toward man. That's the kind of freedom that Peter is wanting us to capture here. And that's the kind of slavery that he wants us to capture here. One that's ultimately unto God without any kind of fear of man. And finally, the qualifier all, I think, should settle it. Be subject to your masters with all fear, all respect. That is something that is only appropriate towards God. Slaves are to submit regardless of the kind of Lord that they have, verse 18. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. It doesn't matter who their Lord is because of who their Lord is. No matter who their Lord is, Jesus is their Lord. And He's ultimate. Their attitude towards their work is not to be determined by any earthly Lord, but their heavenly Lord. And so now, can you see, now that you've immersed yourself in the Bible, how you're ready to come out and view the world more truly rather than the Bible falsely. Can you see how all this applies so easily, so quickly? You don't have to make some big stretch hermeneutically. Can you see how this applies to the world of employee and employer? In your work, who do you fear? Why are you doing what you're doing? Who determines your attitude? Ask yourself this, even if you have that horrible ethic. I'm, just, I'm not going to do that if, you, if you're, it's just rebellion towards your employer. Who's Lord? Who's determined your attitude towards your work? You're not free, you're in bondage. Oh, I'm rebelling. No, you're not, you're in bondage. Freedom only comes in submission to Christ as Lord. And whenever you do that, He determines all your actions, but there's this kind of freedom that comes in that to where you're not ruled over by any kind of man. And then further consider this, pride and dignity and honor and work are not found in relation to what your work says about you, but by what you have opportunity to say by your work. And it's this, Christ is Lord. Consider how far off our modern notions of what work and value and dignity and identity and how that's all tied together are from, uh, from this passage He's writing to slaves, consider some of the demeaning, belittling tasks that may have been set before them, and yet they took them up with chest held high because of who their Lord was, and they were free. Don't think about what your work says about you. Think about what you have opportunity to say by your work. And whenever you work, you have opportunity not only to reflect the image of your God, who worked six days and rested one. You have opportunity to glorify your Redeemer who purchased you to Himself by His blood. Whenever Jesus tells you to mop the floor, shine as you make the floor shine. Even whenever the command comes through the scowling face of a rude and cruel employer. And whenever... A slave or an employee behaves in this way, it's grace 
verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing. The the original language simply says, for this is grace. Notice that Paul is giving a why for this. This is why you should do this. For this. And notice that the why is sandwiched. It's, it's, It's bracketed by grace. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are, and are beaten, you endure, beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. This is grace. It's again, same, same phrase. This is grace in the sight of God. So the, the motivating why that lies underneath of this command is sandwiched by grace. What does it mean, though? This is grace. Should we take it to mean that whenever suffering comes to be our portion, whenever God sets suffering on our plate, whenever it's our experience and, and the lot that he's, he's, uh, he's apportioned us, whenever that is so, should we take it as a gift? It's a grace. Or does Paul mean that any kind of endurance that you're, you're, you have through the midst of such suffering, that that's a grace? Well, both of those are true. But neither one of them is what this text is getting at. There's another kind of element of grace in it. And I think the, f- the word that helps you get to it is credit. What credit is it if when you suffer and are beaten for it, you endure? And that recalls chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where Paul told us that faith, as it comes through a trial and is tested, will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word that you have here as credit is rare in the New Testament. This is only instance. And it can have the idea of glory, honor, and praise. What credit is it? What glory is it to you? What honor is it? What praise is that to you? Whenever faith endures through trials, it will result in praise glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But the most striking and illuminating text, I think, is found in Luke's gospel where Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? That's not the same word that you have here as credit in 1 Peter. But the word that's used for credit there is found in our text. He's just asked, Jesus has just asked, what grace? Same word. What grace is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So grace, reward, credit, benefit, were all used interchangeably. And to solidify that more so, whenever you go to Matthew's account, he asks it this way, what reward do you have? So, This grace is a benefit. It's a kind of credit. But what the word grace does is make solid for us that whenever we receive any reward for having suffered for righteousness' sake, it's grace. We haven't somehow merited that from the hand of God. Indeed, what you're seeing here is that Any suffering with endurance such that it will be rewarded on that day is a triple grace. He's given you the opportunity to suffer for His name. And then He gives you the grace and strength to endure it with faith. And then He rewards it. Grace upon grace upon grace. Acts tells us that whenever Peter and the other disciples once left a council where they had been beaten and then further threatened, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts 5.41. Philippians 1.29 says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. 
There it says both faith and suffering are a gift. And what Peter has done is combine the two. What about whenever you have suffering as that gift and then your faith is strengthened and endured through the midst of that suffering and trial and then God rewards it on the end. What is all of that? Grace, grace, and more grace. And so that Peter is... Intending this by grace, I think, is finally made clear by 3 and verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing, that you might be graced. And with that, when you go to 3 9, that's a general command to all Christians. So do you see what Peter is doing with these, this, this command to slaves? Is taking the principle of 1 Peter that applies to all saints and just making a specific directed application? And so likewise, what you should see is these commands to slaves who happen to be saints aren't unique to them, but apply to all the saints. Such suffering might be evidence that we've dis- Please, some kind of earthly authority. But whenever you're suffering for righteousness sake, for good, know this. It's not because you've displeased your heavenly Lord. Now I want to, as before we move on, I want to point out again how it's just emphasized who's ultimately Lord here. The phrases all fear, mindful of God, and the sight of God all speak to the supremacy of God's Christ lordship. But also the word good. When you do good and suffer for it. Good according to whose standard? If it is the Lord's, the earthly Lord's, He wouldn't be beating you for it. What's implied here is your earthly Lord doesn't want you to do something and you do it because it's good. Because you're not a slave in fear but you're a slave to your Lord above. And you obey Him no matter the cost. Do good, not as some act of rebellion simply against any earthly Lord, but as an act of obedience to your heavenly Lord. And whenever you do so, if, you're, if, you're, if any earthly lord is ever displeased with you, any, any authority, any employer, if they're ever displeased with you, if you ever cause them frustration, may it be for your God-centered good deeds. May it be because your earnest zeal and desire is to love God and love man. And if they ask you to do something that is evil, you come to them and say, I love and care about you too much to do this unethical thing. I fear my God too much to do this unethical thing. Again, it's the same principle we unfolded in relation to the state. Obey even when it costs you. And disobey when it will cost you even more. Knowing that you can't lose more on earth than you will gain in heaven. Now, Peter's given one motivating why in verses 19 through 20. And he gives a second in verses 21 through 25. The exemplary and empowering suffering of Christ. The empowering aspect is seen in the words, For you. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. The exemplary aspect is seen in the words, Leaving you an example. The empowering aspect is unfolded later. It's mentioned first, but it's unfolded in verses 24 through 25. The Exemplary aspect comes second, but it's immediately drawn out on through into verse 23. And in all of this passage, Peter is drawing heavily from Isaiah 53, a passage that most of you, I would guess, are familiar with. That passage that speaks of the suffering of our Lord. But to rightly read Isaiah 53, you have to back up into Isaiah 52.13, where the one spoken of is identified. As Yahweh says, Behold my servant. Verse 
the same word that's used in the Old Testament for slave. Behold my slave. And so it's, it's been popularly referred to Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant. Peter is telling these slaves to obey their earthly lords, be they unjust or good, because they've been called to it by the exemplary and empowering suffering of the servant of Yahweh. This calling, you've been called to this. This calling is not for these saints because they are slaves. This calling is for these slaves because they are saints. Again, this is some, not something peculiar to them. This is the general principle of 1 Peter being applied in a specific situation. This isn't a calling specifically for slaves. This is a calling of all the saints. You see it in, the, in all the scriptures. One instance, Psalm 34, 19 says it this way. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But Yahweh delivers him out of them all. Edmund Clowney comments on this voice verse. <laughs> Peter has shown the glory of God's calling. Christians have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. 2.9 They are called as God's elect, His chosen people, heirs of His blessing. 3.9 But now Peter says, to this you were called. To what? To suffering. To unjust abuse. To patient endurance when they are beaten for doing right. Peter has described our heavenly calling. He does not conceal our earthly calling. Peter has spoken of Christ's sufferings and His subsequent glories, 111. And that's the same pattern He's laying before us for the Christian pilgrimage. As exiles, the road home is the road of suffering. That's what we were called to. Romans 8.17 says, We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. But how often, often is that calling concealed and obscured? Oh, you'll hear about all kinds of callings from the Christian community. But how often this one? Either in the heretical prosperity preaching churches of health and wealth in the name of Jesus, or just evangelical light, chipper, motivational pep talk of accomplishing all things through Christ. You hear of all kinds of the glory that you're called to in Jesus. But how much is made of the call to share in His sufferings? And so we've become not a people of rugged sojourners, but domesticated, delicate idolaters. Saints, this is your calling. To take up your cross and follow your Lord in a world that hates and is antagonistic towards righteousness. The reason Christ was crucified wasn't some kind of specific thing owing to the culture and time. And if He had come at another time, everyone would have been praising and glad that He was there. No, our hearts are so radically corrupt in Adam that we hate the Lordship of Christ. We'd rather have the Lordship of another man. Because then, then at least there's the aspiration that man can be Lord. Man can be dominant. But the gospel of Christ is not a declaration to make Jesus Lord. It's the declaration that He is Lord. And He not only is Lord absolutely as the eternal Son, but He is Lord redemptively, purchasing a people to Himself. And you're called to take up your cross, follow Him, and proclaim His Lordship. And it's hated still. So don't be surprised by any suffering that might come your way. Greet her at the door. 
I've been preparing for you. My Lord told me to expect this. Welcome it not with some kind of ascetic or masochistic bent to enjoy the suffering itself, but with the same kind of joy that Christ came to it with, that joy that was set before Him on the other side. Now, in what ways is Jesus' death an example? There is a way that you can suffer like Jesus and a way that you cannot. As James and John learned, there is a way that you can drink from the cup of Christ and a way that you don't want to and you cannot. And we'll soon see what was unique about Jesus' death, but first Peter draws on what should not be completely unique. He committed no sin. We can't suffer sinlessly. But what Peter is calling us to again and again in this letter is not to suffer for sin, but to suffer for good, to suffer for righteousness' sake. And so you saw that in verse 20, you see it again in 3.14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 4.14, you read, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Further, he said, no deceit was found in his mouth. No doubt the ancient world, just as the modern world of employment, no doubt it was plagued with lies, as the workplace is plagued with lies. And all in some way to escape suffering or shame in in various ways from both directions. Tell the truth, even whenever it means it will cost you. But don't do it this way, not reviling when reviled. Though we speak truth, don't slander. Don't insult just for the sake of insulting. Oh, speak the truth and it may bite, it may hurt. But may your ultimate motive be obedience toward God and love toward others. Not threatening, but trusting. Suffer with faith. That was the point of 1, 6 through 7. Suffer with faith. Trusting that your God is judge. And that works in two ways. He'll reward good. And He will punish evil. For those who don't believe Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, 2, 6 through 8. A day of visitation is coming, 2, 12, and on that day they will be silenced, 2, 15, and they will be shamed, 3, 16, and they will have to give an account to Him who is judge of the living and the dead, 4, 5. All sin will be judged or already is judged. Judgment has either fallen on Christ or it will fall on the individual. All sin will be dealt with. Every sin against you for which you suffer will be paid for. And so suffer trusting God and hoping that they would experience the grace and mercy you've received from His hand. But if not, tremble in fear for them that they will suffer the fires of an eternal hell as one who has offended one of Christ's little ones. You see how you can trust Him? It's not as if anything you suffer for righteousness' sake won't be dealt with. Tremble at the payment. Now, if Jesus' life is only an example, it's a crushing one because none of us measure up. If Jesus' life is only an example, it's not gospel, it's not good news. Many try to paint the gospel that way, but it has to be more than that. Because if Jesus' death is only an example, it's one of insanity. Tim Keller explains, Imagine that you're walking along a river with a friend, and your friend suddenly says to you, I want to show you how much I love you. And with that, he throws himself into the river and drowns. Would you say in response, How He loved me. No, of course not. You'd wonder about your friend's mental state. But what if you're walking along a river with a friend and you fell into the river by accident and you can't swim? What if He dived in after you and pushed you to safety but was Himself drawn under by the current and drowned? Then you would respond, How He loved me. The example of Jesus is a bad example if it's only an example. If there was no peril to save us from, if we were not lost apart from the ransom of His death, then the model of His sacrificial love is not moving and life-changing. It's crazy. Unless Jesus died as our substitute, He can't die as a moving example of sacrificial love. 
His death was not a meaningless suicide. And so you come to the empowering aspect of Jesus' death. And underlying the empowering aspect is that He died for us. He died as a substitute in our place. Verse 24, He died bearing our sins on the tree. And the phrase on the tree makes vivid what it means for Him to bear our sins. In God's law, He instructed Israel that if a man commits a crime demanding death and you execute him by hanging him, then his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed of God. Deuteronomy 21.23 It's an unavoidable teaching that that is what is intended whenever the authors of the New Testament refer to Jesus being hung on a tree because Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus bearing our sins means that He was cursed by the one He infinitely loved for our sake. That is what's behind the ransom price of His precious blood being spilt out for us that Peter has spoken of. That it was poured out in payment in this way. He was cursed of God. But that sin-bearing death not only delivers you from the guilt of sin, but from the dominion of sin. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Sin remains, but it no longer dominates. And so Paul puts it this way in Romans 6, We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. To the Galatians, Paul wrote, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Jesus died for our sins that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness. So whenever you do good deeds, whenever you live righteously, And then whenever you suffer for that and you endure in a righteous way. All of that, both both parts of that righteousness, the righteousness for which you are persecuted and the righteousness that's existent in the persecution and the suffering, all of that righteousness flows out of the death and resurrection of Christ. It's empowered by His substitutionary death in our place. It's because of where you cannot follow Jesus that you can follow Jesus. Christus exemplar, Christ our example, flows out of penal substitutionary atonement. That Jesus died as a substitute in our place, bearing the penalty for our sins to make atonement, at one to reconcile us and God. And because that's so, because we've been put into union with Christ by grace, our sins atoned for, reconciled to God, because that's the case, you're free. The, the bondage of sin is broken and you're free to live into righteousness. That's what's meant whenever he tells us you've been healed by his wounds. It goes backwards and forward, that phrase. By his wounds you have been healed. In what way? That you could die to sin and live to righteousness. And that you were once straying like sheep. 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Our future inheritance, which Peter has spoken of, which we long for, our future inheritance will mean the healing of every wound. But right now, we are exiles. We don't experience that fullness. But we do participate in this central and glorious aspect of it. We've returned to our Father. We've returned to our Shepherd and Lord Christ. We were straying our hearts at rebellion with Him. But by His wounds, our hearts have been healed. We were in bondage to sin, but now we've experienced some, this healing such that we, we're free to live into righteousness. And so again, the reason that you can obey, the reason that you can trust, the reason that you can do good, the reason that you can endure, the reason that you can live honorably, the reason that you can suffer for righteousness' sake is because of the healing that flows from the wounds of Christ, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so whenever you follow the steps of the crucified lamb sharing in his sufferings, know that you're walking those paths because the shepherd is guiding you along them, overseeing your soul, so that you who share in his sufferings might share in his glory. Saints, it doesn't matter if you're regarded as a slave of men. What ultimately matters is that you suffer as slaves of Christ because of the exemplary and empowering suffering of the servant of Yahweh. Let's pray. Father, put steel in our spine, not some kind of weak faith that claims good things, exemption from bad things, but a faith that knows we are exiles, but that it's worth the journey home. And that all this faith in Christ is not unfounded. A faith that will see us through the valley of the shadow of death. Confident of our shepherd. And in his good name we pray, trusting. In the name of Jesus, amen.